Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My dad supposedly had brain tuberculosis, and we don't really have encephalitic tuberculosis in America. I remember it was supposedly very unprecedented, and but he kept living. And if you look up encephalitic tuberculosis on, like, the CDC website, it will just say, like, you're probably dead already. <laughs> and the CDC tends to be kind of oh, hilariously optimistic <laughs> and, and try to, like, they try to tamp down panic. So if they're telling you you're dead meat, like you're beyond dead meat. But but he lived, but then he would go home and he would get sick again and go into the hospital again. And it just kind of kept repeating. And finally he died. And in that time, I was getting phone calls from family members, sort of unsolicited, saying, you know, the doctors in the hospital filed adult protective service claims, like there are multiple of them uh, independently of one another, supposedly. And so that's all kind of happening. At the same time, I found I found a breast lump. I went to the doctor and it was nothing, but I couldn't accept that. I I was completely non-functional. I mean, I just... I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't move. I mean, my husband had to take off like a week of work just to sit with me. I mean, it was very, very bad. And finally, it was so bad that I was so desperate. I went to the therapy center, which was free at my graduate school. I can vividly remember when they they triaged me in because I was just like hyperventilating in the waiting room. Like I had no shame or dignity about any of this. Like it was beyond that point. Sure. You don't get to choose when you hyperventilate. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and so they were just like, it was supposed to be like a semester wait, but they were like, uh, get this person into the office. So I'm filling out these forms and there's all these questions about my mom and my dad, like, did they have psychiatric issues? And I actually remember saying out loud under my breath, what does my mom have to do with any of this? I was so frustrated that they wouldn't just talk to me about this unending anxiety that I was dying of cancer that doctors had told me I wasn't dying of. And so it was through meeting with this doctor that I, I think, I, I can't remember precisely, but what I believe happened is that I would just say things like, well, yes, like I was sick a lot, you know, and so maybe that feeds into this anxiety. And then I think the things that were quite normal to me would come out. But a, a psychologist hearing the amount of morphine I was on they would stop me and they would ask me to probe like 
why did you need that? And I would say, well, because I had fibromyalgia. Who told you you had fibromyalgia? Well, my mom. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. Today's guest is Dr. Kari Nixon, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. She also teaches English at Whitworth University. Her research focuses on the social nexus of death, disease, and community, and particularly for our purposes here, how illness impacts identity. Ironically, she chose this focus of study before she even realized that she herself was a survivor of factitious disorder imposed on another, also known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Perhaps the best-known case in recent years is that of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who was abused by her mother for decades, led to believe she had disorders such as leukemia and muscular dystrophy. She was forced to use a wheelchair, though she could walk, She was starved, kept in her home as a prisoner, and subjected to painful, unnecessary medical treatments and surgeries, all so that her mother, Dee Dee, could garner sympathy, attention, money, and resources. In 2015, Gypsy freed herself from her mother's controlling grasp by conspiring with her boyfriend, Nicholas Godijan, to murder Dee Dee. She spent eight years in prison for her role in that crime, only emerging at the end of 2023. As such, Munchausen by proxy is very much back in the news, and we were glad to connect with an expert who has experienced it firsthand. One thing that might surprise you, given the coverage of cases like Gypsy Rose Blanchard's, is that far more often, this disorder and abuse takes a much more subtle form. Uh, Surprisingly enough, this was not something that I consciously chose because of my background. I actually had no real conscious awareness that I was a survivor of Munchausen by proxy when I chose that dissertation topic. I thought that I was just randomly interested in the subject. And my dissertation research was about It was in the Victorian era. I studied Victorian literature, and so I studied the ways different family structures shifted around an ill individual. So, uh, for example, I have chapters on sexually transmitted disease and, and what the revelation of sexually transmitted disease does to a romantic partnership. So, you know, it wasn't Mm. in any way mirroring what I had gone through. And in fact, I think that there's almost no chapter on mothers and daughters. Yet midway through my dissertation, I realized that I had lived through Munchausen by proxy. And, and I think the connections are are pretty obvious. And, and perhaps, perhaps I stayed away from the mother-daughter relationship purposely without realizing it in a way, you know, because I have a mother, a father-daughter relationship and I have uh, married couples and dating couples and community relationships. But Actually, now I'm thinking about this for the first time. Conspicuously, no mother-daughter relationships. That is fascinating. How were you feeling at the time that you were in grad school? What I remember is at the time, I really didn't identify with being an ill person at all. I certainly still Hmm. believed that I had been ill, but enough time had passed that I really didn't even worry about relapses. 
So when did you come across the Munchausen by proxy idea in your research? My first PhD that I began, though I did not finish, I dropped out after a semester, was in clinical psychology and primarily psychopathology. So I knew of the concept from then, but really never thought about it at all. I mean, I remember a friend in college telling me that they were a survivor of Munchausen by proxy. And I vividly remember sitting at the breakfast table with them. We were out for brunch like you do all the time in college. And I was I was like, that's messed up. Like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Like, nothing. No awareness whatsoever. No glimmers of recognition, huh? And then she recommended Hmm. a memoir to me called Sickened by Julia Gregory. And I read it with the distanced clinical observation of a psych student to whom this had never happened. (laughs) Fascinating. (laughs) In a weird way, I, I can say in almost like a double blind study way, this was neither like suggested to me like because I was clearly not suggestible. I was very (laughs) completely unaware in a way. But I would have told you in that same breath, like, yes, I was on morphine throughout high school, but I needed the morphine and my mother saved me even as I'm reading. So in a way, it's kind of nice. It's it's very funny for me to look back on and see how dense I kind of was. (laughs) But um, it does prove to me when I, in a way, where I'm never going to get a confession from my mother, right? There's never going to be the external proof that I might want. Mm -hmm. It kind of helps me know that this wasn't suggested to me by any external source. In fact, I was quite resistant to any suggestions. And at the same time, these weren't memories I recovered later. They were always things I always remembered. I just didn't know they were different or significant in any way. As you heard at the top of this episode, her breakthrough in understanding came in the wake of her father's strange fluctuating health with his supposed diagnosis of brain tuberculosis and doctors filing protective service claims, and her own overwhelming anxiety that she would die of cancer after finding a breast lump. Going into triage for an anxiety attack, she was finally met with questions that forced her to confront her mother's role in her history of illness. I think in general, Munchausen by proxy in many cases, this is just my personal opinion, it's something that doesn't hold up very long to any sort of detailed scrutiny. Mm -hmm. But I think that these abusers are very good at creating situations where there's not chances for detailed scrutiny. Right. So it very much felt like the moment I asked questions, and of course I was kind of probably motivated to by my dad's death and, and family members calling me as well, to say, what did I really need to be on morphine? Was there a good reason for a 15-year-old that weighed 80 pounds to be on 80 milligrams of morphine every day? And and as I said, once you ask that question, especially, I know you're a mom. I'm, I wasn't a mom then, but now I am. And I'm like, oh, fuck no, there's no good reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it wasn't any like one momentous, you know, like I wish there was this cool movie moment, but it was this very slow process mm. of even thinking to ask questions that most of us probably never would need to ask about our mothers. I I think you you bring up a similar point sometimes that like we would all like to think that the justice system works and that these things just wouldn't happen to us. So we, it's easier for us to make assumptions and stereotypes than question how dangerous the world might be at any given moment. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's something similar. I mean, who in their right mind is going to say like, oh, when I had pneumonia that one time, was my mom lying to me about that? And every, everything I knew is false. Like most of us are going to need a huge like impetus to ask that question. But what I found with Munchausen by proxy is once the question's asked, it kind of reveals itself to be a mirage very, very quickly. Hmm. I think one of the things that really inspired me about what you're attempting to do, which is get more people to understand and appreciate Munchausen by proxy, is to talk a little bit about how subtle it is. Because the way that you see it portrayed in the classic, you know, Netflix documentary is the mother's like secretly injecting bacteria into her child and or like pouring, you know, like we, we've we all seen um, uh, the sixth sense yes. where the mom is pouring like pine sol into the, in, you know, poisoning, right. actively poisoning a child. But in reality, Munchausen by proxy, yes, it can come in those extreme forms, but that's more rare. What what do you normally see? And for instance, what did you see in your own personal experience? I think I'll start broad with answering that, which is kind of using more of my expertise as a medical humanities professor to kind of frame the problem sort of backwards. If we assume that Munchausen by proxy is a form of abuse, and I, I think it pretty obviously is, then we can use other forms of abuse as parallel concepts to think about how it probably looks. Because the big problem with Munchausen by proxy, as you alluded to, is that I think the majority of cases are invisible, likely even to the victims themselves, as in my case. So, I mean, obviously, abuse can work many different ways. But if you just take let's say a domestic violence situation with a boyfriend that is abusing his partner. Does that boyfriend want everybody around his partner to notice her black eyes? Probably not because they don't want questions asked. I mean, I think it does happen, but I think if the person abusing them had foresight and preference, which they maybe all don't always they're hoping that they don't get seen for who they are. They want to be seen as the charming boyfriend, not the boyfriend that's punching his girlfriend. I think the same is obviously true about sexual abuse. Uh, the person does not want to be seen as a sexual abuser. So if we just apply that logic, then I think it makes sense to say, even though there is this huge absence in Munchausen by proxy, I can't prove this statistically. But I think we can argue that most moms who are doing this, we do know that it's 99% of the time mothers, they don't want to get caught. Number one, an abuser usually doesn't want repercussions. Number two, in cases, in the case of the Munchausen by proxy mom, it's kind of crass to say it this way, but they're losing their source of their sort of the fuel um, if they don't have somebody to get attention by proxy of, then they've lost everything. Right. Theoretically, uh, an abusive man can get another partner. Right. But you can't just get another kid. It's hard. <laughs> now, they often do get foster yeah. children, but that still is a process, right? So I, I think that there are higher stakes for them flying under the radar. And flying under the radar means being more subtle. 
I think that we have um, some confirmation and selection biases in what we see most often, because what we see most often are the ones who got caught. I mean, they for lack of a better phrase, they flew too close to the sun. They pushed it too far, the scam. Mm. And they perhaps, let's say, did something like claim their child has cancer, which is objectively verifiable. Right. When you claim my daughter is having psychotic episodes that she doesn't remember, nobody can really refute that. Right. She has chronic pain that is, uh, you know, there's no reason for it, but she does. I promise she does. <laughs> yeah. So, and and we do know, so we do a few things statistically. Most studies of Munchausen by proxy say that it is probably vastly underdiagnosed. So if you Google how prevalent is it, we think, most experts think that's probably a very, very low estimate. I would say that it's underdiagnosed because we're not seeing the full picture. We've been led by media, both journalism and novels and movies, to believe that it looks like this one extreme form of faking cancer or being in a wheelchair. So we don't actually know or see the other incidences for what they are. I think we saw a similar thing, um, dynamic with sexual abuse in like the 70s, where we started saying that, or even the Me Too movement, where we started saying that there's you know, if you're drunk and passed out, it's still rape if somebody has sex with you when you can't consent. Right. It took a while to recognize those spectrum. And I think we need to get there with Munchausen by proxy. But we do think it's more common than we realize. We know that it's almost exclusively mothers. And we know that most of the time it begins with an actual presenting problem. That means that usually there is something the child is complaining about. And I think that's a myth we need to reveal, that it's not usually that they're just causing an illness. It does happen. But again, those are the people flying too close to the sun and pushing the scam way too far. Most of them, the kid is maybe nauseous a lot, and they take it too far. In my case, I I did have pain. I was telling her I had pain. And I've seen a lot of victims when, even once they realize that this happened to them, myself included, they self-gaslight and say like, well, it wasn't her fault because mm. I did say something hurt and maybe maybe I had psychosomatic pain issues. I very much think that I did. That doesn't justify what happened. So I do think right. there's also some definitional changes that need to happen. Um for a long time, we defined Munchausen by the mother's motivation, but now experts are saying we don't define any other condition like drug abuse or anything based on motivation, which we can't ever know. We define it based on the harms and the impact. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important, too, because for me as a victim, for instance, when I get into a headspace where I say, well, maybe she didn't know, maybe she was a victim of the opioid epidemic and she didn't understand no, like she still had a duty to protect me from harm. And what we know is that being on that much opiates is harmful to a child. So I think that also makes it clearer for victims. For me, I think just telling my story because most people don't have access to the tens of thousands of dollars of free therapy that helped me understand. But when I've told my story just to anybody who will listen, I mean, like dentists, massage therapists, like just anybody, like I have... Maybe not that many skills, but screaming a lot about things I care about is one. 
(laughs) (laughs) The number of people that I would encounter that would kind of go pale when I was talking and say that that had happened to them, but they didn't realize that it was abuse. Mm. That's when I really realized that I had to tell my story because if I didn't understand what happened to me and these people didn't understand until they heard somebody else give them an example that they recognized then I think the first stop to stopping this sort of feedback loop of thinking that it's only these extreme cases is to talk about the less extreme cases. But it's really hard because, uh, you know, even journalists typically don't want to hear that. It's not marketable. Why not? It doesn't, I mean, you're probably one of the biggest victims of journalistic stereotypes. (laughs) I mean, it's not interesting, right? I mean... Mm, It doesn't go Mm -hmm. far enough, and therefore it's not interesting. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. Tell me some of those stories that gets people to go, oh... I didn't know. What are we looking at here specifically? Yeah, I think the biggest one, I've already said that I was on very high doses of morphine for two years. That's probably the like biggest extreme of my story. But when when I say things like, as a teenager, if I was crying because I had this poor health situation and probably a bad family structure, when I would cry, which teenagers just do, and my parents would like rush into the room with oxycodone or hydrocodone, hydrocodone, and just like give me that to make me stop crying. That is a moment that I have heard so many people just pause and be like, it was bad that my parent was just giving me like opiate painkillers for like a routine headache that I had one night. <laughs> and, and and not just one time, but doing that like weekly, daily. Mm-hmm. That's the story that I recall people just like always, always freezing. And if there's anybody listening who's thinking, well, okay, that wasn't so bad. I will say that that almost beyond, well, I wouldn't say beyond the morphine, but that was a separate independent story where a psychiatrist of mine stopped me outright and was like, that alone is worth a CPS call. Like I would be calling CPS if somebody told me that at a 16 year old. Mm-hmm. So it is verifiably a problem. Um, I found that victims often think maybe it, it doesn't, you know, it really doesn't rise to the levels we see in media and therefore this can't be what happened to me. And this wasn't just happening when you were a teenager. I mean, pretty much your entire life, you had been sort of given medication as a way to deal with routine things like being a baby that cries. Can you talk yeah. to me a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. So uh, when I was an infant, uh, I have so many aunts and uncles that will say they remember this conversation with my mom where she would say that she would just give me Benadryl as a six-month-old 
and put me in my car seat and lock me in the laundry room with the dryer running so she wouldn't have to hear me crying. Now, interestingly, you can tell this story to people and a lot of people will be like, a lot of moms did that in the 80s. Two things. Number one, it it seems that even at the time in the 80s, my aunts and uncles were sort of horrified by this. So I, I think somehow it was a little bit abnormal even at that time. And number two, this is exactly my point. I believe that the most, the abusers of Munchausen by proxy that are most successful at carrying out this abuse for the longest time and not losing the source of their abuse to like CPS are the ones who are able to take some semi-socially acceptable things and or poorly understood conditions like infant colic and do something that's just just normative enough that if you met this mom at the park and they said that to them, you're not going to go call CPS on that mom. Because right. as moms, again, I can kind of relate to you on that level. As moms, like, it's all of our biggest fear, right? That like somebody's going to catch us on the day we didn't brush our daughter's hair very well. And they're going to be like, that mom's neglectful. And, and they just catch us on this bad day, right? So I think most of us err on the side of like, I'm not going to be reporting on this mother that I don't know. And, right. and we're all going to tend to say, well, sometimes people do the Benadryl thing. When I was seven and eight, that's when I was diagnosed in the late, early 90s with ADHD. And so I was on Ritalin and then also Prozac for reasons I'm, I'm unclear about. And again, you could say the mid-90s is the height of when everybody was getting their kid put on Ritalin. And so to me, my, my sort of rather mundane pattern reveals a very important thing that she was using whatever was kind of could, she could get away with at the time. Whatever we didn't understand, colic, ADHD, chronic pain in teenagers. And she was being able, therefore, to manipulate those things in ways that nobody would question. So a lot of times the individual instance is not overtly suspicious. But if you kind of step back as if you're looking at a Monet painting, you can't deny the pattern Mm -hmm. that reveals that this is happening over and over and over with this parent-child dyad. And I think that's important. As a mom myself, I think it's hard sometimes to know how seriously to take a symptom your child has. I mean, to some extent, we're teaching them when they say my stomach hurts, right? Do we panic? Do we say you're hungry? Do we say you need to poop? We could get it wrong sometimes, but that's different than this pattern you see. Because I I often find resistance from moms in wanting this sort of advocacy because they're scared that they will get falsely flagged. Mm. Research shows that moms are almost never falsely flagged. But secondly, I I think we could reassure those moms by saying that one mistake where you look back and you say, should I have cut that tongue tie? Maybe we didn't need to do that. You know, that's different than a pattern over an entire life where it, it kind of seems pretty consistent. Right. And there are also specific behaviors that we can point to as being an example of, okay, this person is pushing it beyond the the realm of reasonability. Like, 
I mean, a good example that I've read from your description of your experience was that your mom, when she was not getting the outcome from one doctor, she would move on to another doctor and another doctor. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about those kinds of flags that would uh, allay some mother's ho- or fears about putting the word the word out there that this is a real problem. Yeah, there are some red flags. Doctor shopping is a huge one. Honestly, with in my research, I think that ties into more um, broader issues in society. In America, particularly, we think of doctors as sort of like a consumer <laughs> client relationship. And I think people do change doctors sometimes when they don't get the level of care they need. And and so I don't want to make anybody worried if they've done that. But certainly going mm-hmm. to doctors after one after another after another is a good example. Another one that I remember from my own experience and is backed up in the literature is a, a child who seems to be old enough to explain their own experiences, either not being allowed to by the mother or what I think is actually probably more true kind of just opting out of talking about their own body. Mm. I don't think my mother ever just told me not to talk, not even in private. A lot of victims do remember their mother telling them to not talk. Mine didn't, but I just believed that she was the one that understood better and that I didn't know what was happening and I needed her to advocate for me. And when I look back, again, being a mom has been I think very elucidating to like help me own how extreme some of these things were. Most survivors don't want kids because they're scared to to do that. But in my case, it's been mostly enlightening. My eldest daughter is about to turn eight. And absolutely, when we go to the doctor by six and a half, she could talk. I mean, for the most part, she can tell the doctor what's happening. She can totally tell the doctor what's going on with like external symptoms that she's aware of, right? This might be different for like uh, malnutrition issues that they might not be aware of, but like she had like a little cyst somewhere and she could tell him, does it hurt? Does it not hurt? Where is it? What does it feel like? I was 16 and in doctor's offices where one doctor finally was like, let her talk, let her answer for her own self. So when I think about myself, I, I don't think it was that abnormal because my normal was just what I lived through. But when I compare it to other kids I see, I'm like, oh, that's really weird. And I think it would probably mm. take any adult by surprise uh, to see a kid that old just like shutting down and letting their mother talk for them. Because generally a teenager particularly <laughs> doesn't want their mother to talk for them. Totally. You're right that being a mom definitely puts a lot of these kinds of things into perspective. And I've thought a lot about how, especially how the the general Western mindset tends to pathologize a lot of things about kids and has historically done that. Like I had friends who were prescribed Ritalin when they were kids because they couldn't concentrate in school. And instead of thinking, well, maybe the school structure is not ideal for them, we instead pathologize the child and say that the child needs medication and this over-medicalization of common and understandable human experience. And I wonder if, like, there's something similar to that with the psychology of what was going on with your mom, because like, is the is there something perhaps 
understandable about, not to say excusable, but like, can we understand how a mom can sort of become addicted to the mm-hmm. idea that she can control her daughter's or child's symptoms and have this sort of relationship with them where there is this ongoing interdependency? And is that a symptom of our society anyway? Have you given any thought to that? So much thought. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) And this is why I'm like so glad that you could have me on here because I think in your work, you ask these questions. Um, So because I study the Victorian era, I do a lot with gender norms coming out of that era. And I've actually published a book recently co-authored called Optimal Motherhood and Other Lies Facebook Told Us, which is not at all about um, Munchausen by proxy, but for instance, about the double bind many moms find themselves in about formula feeding versus breastfeeding, to name one example. And, And what we highlight is that Women are always trying to find the perfect way to do motherhood because we've been told since the Victorian era that there is a perfect way. Mm. And I would add to that that in the Victorian era, not only that, but they were told that pretty much the best thing you could do as a human was to be a good mom. And I think, I mean, I love teaching the Victorian era because they're such a good straw man. Like so much of them we look at and we're like, oh, like what a horrible way to talk to people. But then if we examine our society, I think we often find that we're not as much farther advanced from that than we would like to be. Um, I mean, I've taught about your case when I talk about Victorian sexual purity narratives and this idea that if somebody's not perfectly pure, they're this, uh, the Madonna, the whore dialectic. And when I taught that Victorian novel, we watched The Bachelorette from three years ago where this, the Bachelorette herself was left by a man because he thought she wasn't a virgin. Like, so we often aren't as far advanced as we would like, but they, they, I think the Victorians were more open about it. (laughs) They would just say that they believe these Mm. things. So we can almost look in the mirror a little bit more honestly with the Victorians. And I absolutely very much think that Munchausen by proxy has something to show us about the pressures we put on mothers. I don't excuse her behavior, but as a scholar, I have to understand it. And I think Mm. there are uncomfortable questions that we don't want to ask because we don't want to even borderline on excusing it. But I think we have a society where there's no acceptable way to admit that one is unhappy with and maybe not good at being a mother and still be seen as a valuable human. Mm. I think think she was unhappy. It could have been postpartum depression. I mostly think that my personality overwhelmed her. My youngest daughter is exactly how I was described by every adult, both her and ones that didn't pathologize me. My youngest daughter is exactly like that. And of course, like any mom, there are days where I'm like, oh my God, could you just not be quite so much? (laughs) But then of course, at the same time, as a mother who is, you know, I think a bit more constitutionally capable than my mom was, at the same time, I'm like, but this too much is what makes you beautiful, you know? So, But there is that tension, right? There's, and so I have seen with my kids, I'm like, I think this, this is a moment that she just wanted to stop. Mm. And this is a behavior that she just had to quell. She just had to make it go away. She didn't have the capacity. And there are 
to this day, 2023, there's no resources. I mean, who, who the hell would you go to and be like, I'm not capable of raising my baby? Right. And not have it be just stripped away from you completely. Like it's either one yes. or the other. You either do it alone or you have no yeah. baby. And, and I don't and, think most people, I think there's probably women out there that would like to admit that they'd rather not have their baby. Mm. But they probably can't even admit it to themselves because in our society, that makes you terrible. Mm. And I think that's where we get infanticide. It's where we get shaken baby syndrome. I think a lot of sad cases possibly could have been avoided if we allowed, like, I mean, some hospitals have like a drop box <laughs> where you can just take your baby, no harm, no foul, and you say, I can't do it, bye. As awful as that might sound, I think it might be like, we have to admit that women and mothers are humans. And some people, I mean, we see with animals, some animals just mm -hmm. reject their babies. Like it happens. And if we made an allowance for it, that would not only give a practical outlet, but I think begin to slowly allow mothers to say, I can't do this. And it's okay for me to acknowledge that and give this baby a better life. Mm. That's my belief. Maybe I'm making too much of an excuse for her, but even if I'm not, I think the cultural dynamic is there where we have told women that you can't admit you're a bad mom. And that also the other side of that coin is that being a good mom is a sort of self-death and martyrdom. And I think some people in a really bad position, they take that too far of like, this isn't what I wanted. I'm not very good at this, but I get this meaning out of being this like sacrificial martyr to the child. I've been told there's meaning in that. And all at the same time, when you pathologize the child, it's the child's problem, not you, mm. that you have to question your value as a mother. Mm. So you not only don't have to self-investigate a really hard question that our society does not allow for easy investigation of, but you very neatly pass that on to the child. So I think for my mom and maybe many others, I think it was a sort of, this kid isn't what I thought this would be, but thankfully, you know, I can fix her. And then I'm kind of this wonderful person and they never have to ask the question, was it me that wasn't really cut out to be a mom? And no one feels comfortable approaching, like, again, like one of the big issues with Munchausen by proxy is that if you examine it closely, it 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 comes to light pretty obviously, but you have to be inclined to examine it closely. And it sounds like from your own experience, there were a lot of people who had doubts yep. in your background but none of them were talking to each other. Yeah. And none of them felt like they had. And I completely understand. Like, I, I don't look at another mom and go, oh, I I from observing her every once in a while have some deep understanding of what it's like to be her as a mom. Right. Like, there's this instinct to just say, OK, uh, you're doing your thing and you're figuring it out. And who am I to? Yeah to say anything. So who am I to examine the situation closely? And I completely understand why a lot of women out there who are moms don't want that close examination and um, because they they feel like their other people's ideas about what's good for their kid is not fully informed and every kid's different, la, 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 la. But at the same time, I, I can't help but think that 
as beings that evolved from monkeys that have always lived in like social groups of interdependency, maybe this idea that one one person mm. is like responsible for the upbringing of of children is a potentially dangerous situation because we're not entirely built for it. Oh, is there anything that's a mic drop moment? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, this is something we cover in our book so much is in the Western world, we don't have a village. Mm. And particularly in America, and I would argue probably Western Europe, you sort of, you hack it alone or you're not hacking it as a mom. Yeah, I, I think, and I think also there, not only support for the mom, but support for the kid, because I can look back and identify times like I live in Norway now. But that's because I was sent to this very odd Norwegian language immersion summer camp every summer in Minnesota. And I think I really fell in love with Norwegian because I fell in love with being in a safe place with adults who looked out for me. Mm. And so, yeah, it's not just the mom, but I think that's huge. But if there were more people actively involved in any one kid's upbringing, then there would be more people to intervene, but also to provide sort of maybe a counterbalancing effect where maybe the kid is uh, sort of more protected against the isolation that, that abusers try to enforce, for example. One other thing I will say, you mentioned pathologization, and I, I talked kind of at length about that, but... I've had this theory that maybe it happens more in societies that are more tend to more medically pathologize things. Mm. And again, we don't have data, but I see it in Europe. I see self-identified survivors in societies that are less medicalizing. So that's really fascinating to me. And I think one other related issue is that research into poorly understood health issues is also research that will help Munchausen by proxy. So I've tried for a long time to demonstrate to the chronic illness community who also sometimes resists this because they don't want to be called fakers themselves. But I try to insist that researching fibromyalgia more helps both of us because then these mothers couldn't exploit chronic fatigue syndrome or Lyme, Lyme disease. So there's a shared interest in understanding more about these conditions. But I think it also shines a light on the conditions that we just don't care about enough as a society, because those are the ones the moms are able to exploit. You mentioned that there's not enough support and empowerment for kids. And I think that's one of the things that's really scary about all of this is that from a young age, kids are led to believe that the relationship that they have with their parent who is exploiting them for whatever their motivations may be, and there probably are many, <laughs> honestly, it's probably a horrible cocktail yeah. of motivations, but there, there's this sense of like not trusting the kid and not empowering the kid to say what they need and what is and what's going on with them even um you know you talked about being a 16 year old who doesn't 
is not even being told by her mom not to talk in the doctor's office, but just is like, oh, my mom speaks better for me than I can. Mm-hmm. Like, how has this whole experience impacted your self-identity as a mother and your relationship with your kids? <laughs> you know, with my own health, it's harder. I've had to work really hard to believe that I know my own body and what it needs. I don't think that I feel that that has been as difficult with my own kids. I I tend to have a bit of a mental block in a way about seeing my own situation, as I think is maybe evident. I can talk about it really clinically. But if I think about a kid my age going through this, I get really mad. If I, if I make it not me, then I can feel the feelings. So mm. perhaps that's why with my kids, I don't feel that inability to under, to know whether to, I don't know, be really concerned about something. But I will say, and I say this with, um, I don't know, every caveat one could possibly throw out there. <laughs> In my, uh, my weakness has been to sometimes under worry about things. Hmm. Um, I don't want that to be interpreted that I've never, that I've ever neglected my kids because I haven't. Or, or if I have neglected an issue, it's been a non-life-threatening one. I'm trying to think of a good example that also protects like privacy because I'm very, like, I don't like to talk about medical issues my kids have because I don't think that's my business to tell others. But sure, sure. Let's, let's say something like eczema, right? You know, like a routine concern that like, I probably tend to not deal with it because especially my eldest daughter, she's just not a, she doesn't complain about things like things that I see later, like other kids have the same issue and they're like, ow, this itches, this hurts. She just, she just doesn't. And so my policy had always kind of been, (laughs) if the kid isn't complaining, it's not for me to say it's an issue. Right. That's trusting the kid. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so this is what you know. I don't want anybody to be like, "Oh my God, you're a terrible mom." But, but then that it's tricky because I happen to get a kid that doesn't complain about anything, and so then sometimes when we do go for her routine checkup, the doctor's like, um, "Have you noticed this? Like, why isn't?" <laughs> and so, um, I think once we got to Norway, we had a bit more time and space, and we really sat down and thought about these things more. And I was able to, I had enough time to think about like, who could I talk to that I would trust? It wouldn't be another mom because I'm too quick to be like, well, you could be, you could be over-medicalizing. I don't trust just other moms. (laughs) And it couldn't just be a doctor because doctors told my mom to give me the things. So I finally was like, okay, if it is a friend that I trust and a mom and a doctor, I will believe them. And so I have two of those in my life. Lucky. <laughs> and so there would be, yeah, yeah. There would be things like, okay, like, what do you think about like, they're not sleeping. And the doctor said, I really shouldn't be as worried about melatonin as I am. But with my history with Benadryl, I'm like, but that, like I said, the doctor at some point was like, you know, he wasn't telling me what to do, but he was like, there are health problems from not dealing with their sleep too. <laughs> which is when I realized like as a mom, we never actually get to opt out of these things. We're making a decision whether we intervene or not. 
And so then that's when I would just, I had this like panel of like, what would be trustworthy to me in an objective way? And I would go to those people and be like, actually tell me what you think about melatonin or actually what you, tell me what you think about Miralax for constipation. And particularly if they said that they had done it for their kids, mm. then I felt like I could believe mm -hmm. on like a deep level that it was okay. And we were able to just have a little bit of time and space to go through that discerning process here. And I think finally be making more moderate choices. But it really wasn't until this past year that I realized like there's no not choosing. It, it's much what I hear about people recovering from eating disorders. You never get to not make a decision about eating in a day because you're deciding not to eat, which may be your eating disorder, or you're deciding to eat, which may be another kind of eating disorder. And that's when I kind of realized that like my my default had been to be like, well, it's fine. Like unless she's, you know, mm. really complaining, she's fine. That wasn't my kid and all kids are different. And also that's still a medical choice I'm making by not intervening. So yeah, it's been mostly hasn't been a, a pain point, but I think in some ways that's reflective of the fact that my response was to not address it too much unless there was like an obvious emergency need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I tend to err on the side of if the kid's not complaining, then don't assume something's yeah. wrong and trust the kid. And I I wonder if being exposed to different cultures as well has been super helpful because, you know, like even in our own society here in the U.S., we've had fads like you brought up the Ritalin and like yep. the fad of Ritalin or the fad of the opioid epidemic. Yes. There were periods of time where things were treated as miracles, miracle drugs that everyone was so enthusiastic about. And then it was only with time did we as a society become exposed to the consequences of that. But also potentially someone across the water would go, why are you so your kid can't right. like focus in class, well, just have them go to outdoor school. Like, you know, there's other ways to address issues and there isn't a one size fits all for everyone. And so different societies view different issues in different ways. And has that been potentially helpful to make you feel a little bit more confident about your choices as a mom? It definitely pushed me to think. I mean, it was a babysitter here who was like, I couldn't believe you gave your kids melatonin and I like had like, like one of the biggest meltdowns of my life because I was like, was, did I become this? Like, have I harmed my kids? Like my teeth wouldn't stop chattering. Like, I think I was an actual shock of some kind. Like I was not okay. And that's a cultural difference. Um, but you know what? It was good though, because it forced me into that recognition of like, there is no not choosing to be their guard, like we're their guardian. At the end of the day, we're choosing to do or not do something regardless of what we do. Um, and so I think that was a really important thing for me to confront mm. in a space where they don't have any serious medical conditions. It's important for me to think about how to handle that um, and to think about the fact that even I mean, I very much think melatonin is a fad in America. I think people overuse it on their kids. It was something that we decided to do occasionally 
with the input of doctors, which again, I mean, you have, I think there's such an interesting lens when you have come through Munchausen by proxy, because basically you're like, there's no burden of proof that would be (laughs) enough because you've seen these burdens of proof manipulated by different actors. And that can be really, 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 really scary at its worst. Um, And I don't know if maybe you feel this way through some of the things you've been through of knowing that like the worst, most random thing can happen to you. It can be so, 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 so scary. But it can also be really freeing to know that like there's no simple answers in life. Like everything is just trying to do the very best you can in the moment. And the idea that there is a simple answer to something like child sleep or how to be a good mom is a comforting illusion, but it's an illusion. So like, yes, like I I stand by the fact that we occasionally use melatonin. I don't think it's something that people should be like in Norway, like horrified by. But I do at the same time think it's a fad in America. And I actually spent many years kind of judging people who used it. Mm. I think both of those are too simplistic. The answer, and as you said with ADHD, I think most of the time it's that we expect kids to sit through eight hour school days when I can't sit through a 90 minute meeting as an adult. And yet, ADHD probably does exist in some people at some level that need medication. And like, there aren't simple ways to discern that immediately. Mm. I think all any of us can hope for is to have a good community helping us suss that out. And in most cases, that should be our mom who is doing an imperfect job as well as she can, we hope, in most cases. So what is your relationship with your mom today? And how do you feel about it? Mm. I cut her off when I was pregnant. Uh, Once again, I think things that I could sort of hold at a distance for myself I couldn't when I thought about another child in the mix. Mm. And more than the Munchausen, she had kidnapped me as a nine-year-old in a custodial dispute. And truly, only like two years ago did I realize that sort of counted as kidnapping. I was very, very traumatized by it in the moment. But for most of my life would just say like, yes, I was traumatized, but I was probably making a big deal out of it because it wasn't like a stranger abducted me. So it took me a very long time to realize that, you know, most kidnappings are custodial. That was my bigger fear, is that she would um, find my kids and convince some daycare worker to let her pick them up from school or something. Oh, my God. Yeah, I see you reacting Uh. like every mom's biggest fear. (laughs) Yeah, so it actually wasn't the Munchausen, really, that motivated it, but... um, She's also, well, I can't, I don't want to give too many identifying details, but she's very good at convincing people of things. And so that was my thing is that like, to this day, as much as I know she can't get anywhere near me, I don't even want her to know I have kids. Wow. And you can see the sort of lack of, it's a bit of an irrational fear because I'm here saying that I have kids, assuming she won't find that out. But like, I would still have an absolute panic attack if I thought she even knew that I had children. So no, we haven't talked in in ages. She still contacts me sometimes. She has a cousin, I guess, that sometimes emails me updates no matter how much I tell him not to. And the most recent one was him saying like, 
which I actually I'm kind of grateful for because it's in black and white. Like I'm not gaslighting myself. I'm not imagining this. He said, your mom says that you have a very serious genetic condition passed down from your dad and that if you don't contact her soon, like there could be harms to you and your son. Then I had a panic attack because I'm like, she knows I have kids, but I don't have sons. So then it took like three friends to be like, she doesn't know anything. <laughs> you know, you don't have a son, but um Wow. Like I said, I'm kind of it kind of proves it though. I look at that email sometimes and I'm like, I didn't I didn't build this theory on a bulletin board out of nothing. Like she's still using the fear that I guess she knows I still to this day struggle with of worrying that what if I could be ill? I don't believe I'm ill. That's really important to me. I like would do anything to never embody like a patient identity, but I get like an anxiety and mm-hmm. I need doctors to tell me it's fine because I've been trained that I don't know my own body. Wow. But the doctors can't do any testing. They, I want them to like stand on the other side of the room and just <laughs> tell me I'm fine, which is very, it's a tall order. Um, but yeah, so I cut her off then. I, um, some cousins that are much older than me were basically my unofficial foster family when I was a child. Um, meaning they couldn't get rights to me, but they just let me live there whenever she would let me. And they legally adopted me when I was 30, which is a bit odd, but I mean, I think they're basically my parents at heart. But also I wanted to make sure I said this. I think if anybody is kind of newly realizing they're a survivor, one really important and reassuring thing to do, if you don't want to get legally adopted, you could just give power of attorney to someone but you never want to be in a situation where you're in a coma, let's say, and then doctors not knowing better give decision-making power to that person. Or what was more on the forefront of our minds is if something happened to us and she had any shred of a legal right to my babies, Mm. that would just, so I recommend to anyone, it's actually very easy to get adopted as an adult because consenting adults can do whatever they want. Right. But power of attorney, like if this has happened to you, that would be like the first thing I would suggest that I think would let you rest more easily at night, um, just to know that there's no situation under the sky in which they could have that authority over you again or anyone you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so telling. I, I mean, I, it, it makes sense. Like, you, you know who you trust. I've even had this, like, thought, um, this is going to sound terrible, but, like, ever since I had a daughter— the the thought can't help but come into my mind of, oh, well, you know where most sexual abuse of young girls happens is within the family. And suddenly, like, I'm thinking in my head, oh, do any of my male family members tick any boxes that I've never considered before? And, you know, thankfully, I'm feeling really lucky because I, I don't think so. But, like, those those things go through your mind. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you suddenly are responsible for another person's life in a way that you, you feel even you, it's a different kind of responsibility than you even feel about yeah. your own life and so like the the really deep down feeling of i would not trust my children with my mom is like a deep deep truth mm. and that's that's hard 
Yeah, I could see you reacting to it when when I would mention that. And but it was also very clarifying, right? I guess and I hadn't thought about it that way till you mentioned it, but mm. it really took me being pregnant to be like absolutely fucking not, you know? And mm. and like you say, I think that is very revealing to be like I don't not only want you not in their lives, like I don't want you to know they exist. I want legal protections from across a, an ocean. Like Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's really telling. I hadn't thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> hmm, yeah. Like if there was any any doubt in your mind, like that's that's hmm. the test. Ugh. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you want to tell me about this experience or what you've learned from it that you want to share with people? Hmm. I think it would just be to reiterate that. Um, it's kind of cliche to hear these days, like, don't believe what you hear in media. <laughs> but in this more uh, depoliticized issue, I think I used to be quite mad at media. I was like angry that novelists would write novels using this as a plot device. I think that still makes me mad. <laughs> <laughs> but I would also get really mad at journalists because they would only cover the biggest cases and they would straight up tell me you're like, this is not marketable. It's been done to death. But now I see that it's just kind of this really odd, like glitch in the matrix that we've gotten into where for whatever, because those were the most visible, those were the cases that got caught. Those are the cases that got publicized. And it became the paradigm under which we know Munchausen by proxy to be. Um, And we see it even in medical case studies that the things that doctors think are publishable about a case or a patient are the more extreme ones. So it recapitulates this narrative. And what I've seen from my personal experience is that narrative is the way out to like share our stories gives another look at that. But um, yeah, I think I would just, just state that again, that um, I don't think it's anybody being an evil villain behind the curtain. I thought that for a long time when I was very mad. <laughs> Uh, But now I think it's just this weird glitch that's happened. And the more people talk about it, the more there will be other people who hear stories like this and possibly realized it happened to them or someone they know. And we can start breaking down that one story of Munchausen by proxy, just like the Me Too movement did for one version of what consent looks like. Cool. Well, thanks so much for spending time talking about this crazy experience, Carrie. It's it's great to speak with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks, as always, for joining us. You can find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. You can learn more about our work and how to support it at knoxrobinson.com. And if for any reason you can't leave us a five-star review... Please find someone to be your proxy in shouting about how great Labyrinth is. We depend on word of mouth to grow. Labyrinth is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. This episode was written, edited, and produced by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp.
Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us.